Hi guys, welcome to the OBG Med Student Podcast. This is the podcast that is designed for medical students that are on their OB-GYN clerkship. It covers the APGO topics that are located on www.apgo.org students. And the topic is premature rupture of membranes. Our guest today is Dr. Sam Wen. She's one of our star fourth year residents here at the Hershey Medical Center. Um, and she will walk us through a case and we will ask her some questions. So let's get started. Hi everyone, I'm very excited to talk to all of you um, about premature rupture of membranes. Our teaching case is a 26-year-old G2P0100 uh, patient who is at 31 weeks gestation who presented to labor and delivery with complaints of leakage of fluid and thinking that her bag of water broke. She's had increased vaginal discharge and occasional lower back pain for the last two days. She reported a gush of fluid about two hours ago. This fluid ran down her leg and appeared clear and did not smell funny at all. Her prior pregnancy was complicated by preterm labor and premature rupture of membranes at 26 weeks. Unfortunately, this neonate's course was complicated by necrotizing enterocolitis, respiratory distress, and death at 28 days of life. Dr. Wen, what is the definition of premature rupture of membranes? So premature rupture of membranes is rupture of membranes before the onset of labor. The difference between preterm premature rupture of membranes and regular premature rupture of membranes is that preterm occurs before 37 weeks of gestation. What about pre-viable preterm premature rupture membranes? So the definition of viability varies from hospital to hospital, but typically this occurs before 24 weeks of gestation generally. Awesome. What are some of the risk factors for premature rupture of membranes? So the biggest risk factor that we talk about is also mentioned in this teaching case and is actually a history of prior premature rupture of membranes. Um, Other risk factors that we discuss as high risk would be um, having a vaginal cervical or intraamniotic infection, having a prior preterm delivery, low socioeconomic status, second and third trimester bleeding, cervical insufficiency, possibly due to itself or secondary to a prior procedure like a conization or a leap, having a low BMI, connective tissue disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, nutritional deficiencies such as copper and ascorbic acid, maternal cigarette use or illicit drug use, maternal pulmonary disease in pregnancy, uterine overdistension, and procedures that we do such as amniocentesis. Got it. So what should be the next step for this patient then? How do we actually make the diagnosis? Going back to the teaching case, it gives a pretty classic picture of what someone who broke their water sounds like. She has a big gush of fluid. The fluid runs down her leg and appears clear without any kind of odor. Um, Her prior vaginal discharge and intermittent low back pain can be a sign of something happening Um, or it could just be something that the patient has been experiencing throughout this pregnancy, but either way, that big gush really is a big hint. So when that happens and you get the full story, the first thing that you want to do is do a sterile speculum exam, and there are three major points to a sterile speculum exam. The first part is pooling of fluid uh, by the cervical os. So what that means is when you insert the speculum and you open it, there should be almost a little waterfall of fluid that comes from the cervical os into the lower blade of the speculum. 
If you're unsure whether this is actually happening or not, you can have the patient Valsalva by bearing down or by coughing, and you might see a little pool of fluid develop or actually see it coming from the cervical os depending on how it looks. When you see this, you wanna grab a Q-tip and dip it in this pool of fluid and place it on a slide as well as on a piece of nitrazine paper. This nitrazine paper is also called pH paper and will typically turn blue because amniotic fluid is more basic than the vaginal um, discharge and so it will turn a bright or royal blue, meaning that the pH is around 7.1 to 7.3. Lastly, you want to look at the slide that you wiped the Q-tip on because you will hopefully see ferning. Um, there are different types of ferns that cervical mucus can also show you. However, amniotic fluid ferns typically tend to be more narrow. You know, Dr. Wen, there have definitely been times where I've done this exam to rule a patient in for rupture, and they didn't have a very convincing exam, but there were signs that that nitrosine paper did turn blue. Do you know what the reasons for a false positive nitrosine may be? There's definitely a lot of them. Um, some of them can be alkaline urine. Other things that typically get tested on include semen and blood. As I mentioned, the cervical mucus can also be a little bit of a, a distractor because it can cause funny looking ferns, but also can turn nitrazine a little bit funny, especially if it's infected with something like bacterial vaginosis, or sometimes if patients use a cleaning solution that um, is disrupting the vaginal flora, this can also change the pH. Now things that you can do to try to delineate, or sorry, uh, to try to differentiate between these other options is get a really good history. So when you're asking them about the story, ask if they've had intercourse recently, ask if she's had bleeding recently to try to figure out if these distractors are truly um, changing oh. your exam. Got it. You know, and another trick that I would sometimes do um, whenever there is inconclusive results is I would actually have the patient put a pad on have them walk around our Valsalva and then reevaluate the pad after an hour or so just to see if there is any fluid on the pad that we can then test with the nitrazine swab. I found that to be helpful sometimes. Definitely. Um, what do you think about using the ultrasound to figure out if the fluid is normal? The ultrasound can be helpful in cases where you're not sure what's happening. However, they can't really be used diagnostically, unfortunately. So the way that the ultrasound can be used in a quick and easy fashion would be to, um, first of all, find where the baby's head is to try to figure out position, and then evaluate the fluid that's around the baby. Um, this is typically done by looking at a deepest vertical pocket, um, or a DVP, some people call it an MVP, um, and seeing if there is presence of a normal amount of fluid, which ranges from two to eight. If there's something called oligohydramnios, where the DVP is less than two, this could be concerning that their story is truly that their water broke. However, just because they have oligohydramnios does not mean necessarily that their water is actually broken. That makes perfect sense to me. Okay, so we have this patient. She's 31 weeks pregnant. We've decided that she is in fact leaking fluid and has had premature rupture of membranes, otherwise known as PROM. What do we do next? The first thing is to really make sure that the fetus is doing okay. This is done by putting them on the electronic fetal monitoring. Um, typically we do an ultrasound like we just mentioned to confirm fetal position. Um, sometimes to evaluate if there's an, a good amount of fluid depending on how the subjective uh, appearance is. Um, depending on when their last ultrasound was, you can also do a basic growth ultrasound to try to assess estimated fetal weight. The next thing that you should do is try to assess their laboring status. 
Um, this can be done during the speculum exam where you visually see how dilated the cervix is. Um, there are some providers who say that you shouldn't digitally check the, check the cervix because this is introducing a potential risk for infection at that time. Um, and the next thing that you should do is try to rule out an, inf an infection. This can be done at the time of your exam if you have a high suspicion that their water has already broken. So swabs that you want to grab during your speculum exam include a, a swab for chlamydia, gonorrhea, as well as group beta strep. Um, I agree, Dr. Wen. The digital cervical examination should be, in general, avoided unless the patient appears to be an active or immediate um, immediately about to deliver. Uh, digital exams are associated with an increased risk of infection and they add little information to the available that is available with the speculum exam already. So sterile speculum exams, I agree, provide an opportunity to confirm that they are in fact ruptured, to take a good look at the cervix and also to make sure that there's no umbilical cord or fetal prolapse. Um, advanced cervical dilation and effacement can even be observed with the speculum and so you can get a, a fair bit of information from just looking. Now, depending on how far along the patient is when their water has broken, that can change your next steps in terms of what to do. Before 34 weeks of gestation, there is more benefit as long as there are no signs of labor, abruption, or infection to try to keep the baby in. This is done by giving latency antibiotics, which are typically ampicillin and erythromycin, to prolong the latency period. It can be a little bit confusing because we know that infections are a common cause of premature rupture of membranes. However, these antibiotics are not used to be treating the potential infection, but rather to really prolong the latency period or the time that the baby's able to remain in, in utero. Other additional um, interventions that you should consider would be steroids to help enhance fetal lung maturity and decrease the risk of respiratory distress syndrome whenever they do end up delivering for any reason. Um, patients who are admitted with preterm premature rupture of membranes that are viable should be admitted inpatient and should be kept in hospital on some modified bed rest. While they're in-house, they should be continued to be monitored for evidence of infection, placental abruption, umbilical cord compression, fetal well-being, and labor. Um, there's no optimal frequency or type of assessment to ensure that the fetus is still doing well. A lot of places will do um, sorry, will do daily monitoring for fetal heart rate monitoring and then do twice a week ultrasounds to evaluate the amniotic fluid. Um, however, if there's any point during the day where the mom feels like something is changing or if there are signs of infection or abruption, these monitoring um, options should be done immediately. So when would we recommend delivery, for example, for a patient like this that's less than 34 weeks pregnant? Uh, for every, sorry, for any patient who is above the viable stage, which for general teaching purposes will be above 24 weeks, the patient should be delivered if there's any sign of an infection or fetal compromise, regardless of what has been given to them to manage their uh, premature rupture of membranes. As long as the patient and the fetus are doing well and not showing any signs of an infection, or abruption, or labor, then ideally they can be expectantly managed up to 34 weeks, at which point they can be delivered. Mode of delivery is not dependent on the premature rupture of membranes, but more based on um, routine obstetric indications such as fetal tolerance of labor, fetal positioning, um, as well as maternal status. All right. Well. 
Um, thank you for all that information. I just do have a few more questions. So what would be the risk to this um, fetus now that mom has experienced preterm premature rupture of membranes? Risks that we typically worry about would be cord prolapse, which is when the cord comes through the cervix before any other fetal part, respiratory distress syndrome, necrotizing enterocolitis, infection, intraventricular hemorrhage, and pulmonary hypoplasia, particularly if the fetus is pre-viable or very early on in their gestation when their rupture of membrane occurs. If this rupture of membrane occurs very early on, the other specific um, concern would be skeletal deformity because there is a risk that there will be such low amniotic fluid volume that the fetus is unable to move around and adequately develop their limbs well. What about maternal risks? The biggest risk that we worry about and that I've been harping on throughout this entire case has been infection, which for mom would be chorioamnionitis. Um, secondly would be abruption, and then thirdly would be a need for cesarean delivery because of malpresentation or failed induction. Thank you so much, Dr. Wen. This has been very enlightening. I hope that you guys have appreciated this. Um, if you have any questions, be sure to communicate with us via email or we have an open door policy. Also, you can read more about this in chapter 17 of your Beckman and Ling textbook, um, the eighth edition, or follow along on www.apco.org backslash students. Thanks.